Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations. I am Dr. Jonathan Bargett and today I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Ollie Lloyd. He is a senior registrar in infectious diseases in the Regional Infectious Diseases Unit in South East Scotland in Edinburgh. Welcome Dr. Lloyd. Hi Johnny, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you and really what I'd like to do is just introduce the episode that we're um, talking about today and we're going to be focusing on the patient that presents with symptoms and signs of bacterial meningitis. Why are we talking about this Dr Lloyd? So I think meningitis is one of those topics that people are a little bit scared of um, especially more junior doctors. I certainly remember when I was a more junior doctor sort of feeling a little bit scared about either missing the diagnosis or getting it right because I guess the implications for the patient can be quite significant. And when we start to sort of think about the outcomes of meningitis, they're not really as good as we would hope. And we can maybe get onto that a little bit later. That's a really good introduction. I guess what I'd like to really just hone in on and focus on for the listeners is just back to basics. What What is meningitis and how can we classify meningitis? So I think in terms of meningitis, you can think of it, that, that term meningitis really means from a pathological sense, the inflammation of the meninges. And I think that sometimes throws people a little bit because things like other terminology can creep in like meningism or a meningoencephalitis and I think you know when we drill down to the kind of the nomenclature the naming of it meningitis in its purest form literally just means inflammation of the meninges and when you start to go on and think a bit more broadly about well, what can cause inflammation of the meninges we can either probably classify that a number of different ways, but the way I quite like to classify that is either as infectious or non-infectious, because there are obviously a group of problems that can cause non-infectious meningitis. And in terms of infectious meningitis, you can then really break it down into the kind of major pathogen, like groups of pathogens that can cause meningitis for example, bacteria, virus, parasitic, mycobacterial, fungal, etc. And so I think that's a, a kind of a, a reasonable way of classifying meningitis. And it gives you a bit of a framework to start thinking about, you know, what actually might be the root cause of a meningitis um, when your patient presents to you. I guess one of the things that really gets your, your hairs on end or makes you really focus in on is whenever you're on shift and you hear your bleep go and you get a referral from a GP and it's a GP asking for really quite an urgent admission review for someone that they think has bacterial meningitis or uh, meningococcal septicemia, especially in, in young adults. Is this something that you can give a bit of insight into whenever you take that call, Dr. Lloyd? Yes, I think it's always it's always a worry, isn't it? When you when you get that call, your ears prick up and you think, I wonder how sick this patient's really going to be when they come through the door, because there's obviously quite a large spectrum of presentation. And I guess you can also think of it, you know, in terms of a classification of how severely unwell your patient is from right at one end, a sort of what you might term in inverted commas, a meningitic presentation. And, you know, right over at the other 
end of the spectrum, a kind of fulminant sepsis, septic shock type presentation. And patients can obviously be anywhere in between those two ends of the spectrum. And how you go about dealing with those patients, depending on where they lie on that spectrum, will alter you know, what you do quite significantly. I guess one of the things obviously we're, we're very well aware of is um, red flag symptoms. And there are nice guidelines for most disease processes. And certainly you look out for headache, neck stiffness, photophobia, rash, among other symptoms. What, what would be the, the most useful symptoms to ask for? Or in other terminology, what would be the more sensitive or specific symptoms? Yeah, so there's been there's been a number of papers over the years published on the, these kind of clinical signs and symptoms to look out for in your patients. And you know, when we think of the, the kind of the classic triad that you you know we often think about for meningitis of a fever, neck stiffness, and altered consciousness level. When we think about those three clinical features, probably about 44% of patients with acute bacterial meningitis will have all three of those. So, I mean, that's not even 50% of people with bacterial meningitis. And I guess that starts to maybe take the lid off the, the can of the problem that you face in that the majority of people who actually present to hospital with a headache and a fever probably don't have meningitis. And how are you going to sort out from your group of patients about who genuinely has meningitis or not. And when we start to sort of think about neck stiffness and also some of the more specific clinical signs that we look for, like Brudzinski's or Koenig's, you find that often these signs are relatively specific. So if your patient has these signs, then it's a pretty good indicator that there is definitely meningeal irritation but they're not terribly sensitive. And so for neck stiffness, one paper, you know, a few papers have kind of quoted in the region about 30% sensitive and 70% specific. But when you start to think of Koenig's, you know, the classic one that everybody kind of almost goes to reflexly to exclude meningitis, it's probably only about 11% sensitive, but it would be about 95% specific. So you can see that if you have a positive Koenig's, it's really helpful your odds on for meningeal irritation. But really, if your patient doesn't have it, you can't use it as a, an excluding criteria, basically. Mm. I guess one of the things that you talked about is the different parts of that triad. Obviously, you know, when you hear a GP say that someone has a fever, you take that seriously. But other presentations, as you said, could present with fever and headache. Is there any pattern of fever that may point you more towards the meningitis fever than others? Not really, I'd say. I mean, I think this idea of, you know, we often think about certain diseases having classic fevers, fever patterns, but actually we know that most things can give fevers of most patterns. And so probably, you know, fever patterns are probably not terribly helpful. But I guess, you know, if we come back to that, how do we sort out you know, I guess the wheat from the chaff, the ones that we really want to know uh, who've got meningitis, you know, the data suggests that probably 95% of cases of acute bacterial meningitis probably have two or more features of fever, headache, neck stiffness, or altered mentation. So, you know, again, I think it just illustrates the, the, that, that difficulty that 
we have of someone sat in front of you with a fever and a headache, do we really think that this is meningitis or not? Um, and probably the only way to definitively decide that is to do further testing. So before we come on to that, let's just take it back to that call from the GP. The GP asks you, should we give this patient antibiotics before they hit the door? What would your thoughts on that be? What would your advice be to our medical registrar on call who take that call? So I think that's quite interesting because I don't take so many calls in terms of acute receiving anymore as I used to. But definitely this that seems to have sort of fallen out of favour with, with GPs um, of kind of administering antibiotics in the community pre-hospital. And I think the guidance is reasonably clear from the British Infection Association that if the GP has a high index of suspicion that that's the case, you know, then they probably should go on and give either benzoyl penicillin or a careful asporin that they have. But I guess, you know, with new ways of working, especially now in the midst of COVID, I'm not sure how often acute on-call medical registrar is really going to get that call anymore, because I think the reality is that people are being seen less face-to-face, and I'm just not quite sure how that's how that's panning out really anymore. That's a useful insight, and I guess that leads us into when we see the patient. So let's just talk about an example, an imaginary patient, so to speak. And we've got a 19-year-old woman who has had a sort of four-day history of just non-specifically feeling unwell. They've just started a new college course, um, and this time they have had some face-to-face contact and have moved in with some new friends. And when she hits into the assessment area, she's using a high. She's got a high early warning score, and mainly that's for conscious level. Um, Fever of 39, heart rate 100, BP 90 over 60 saturation of 98% but respiratory rates by 25. They've done a blood sugar with the ambulance and it's six but not as alert as what you had expected to be. What's your thought process? Obviously from an ATE perspective you would do the usual things but what's your what's your approach to, to this patient in particular Dr Lloyd? Yeah so I think as you said I mean I think the, the A to E approach is extremely important and I guess my background in acute medicine has taught me that over the years But I think depending on what her consciousness level is, I think, you know, you're starting to think about, do I need to ask the intensive care physicians to be involved in this case? Because some of these patients with particularly meningococcal sepsis can really rapidly deteriorate in front of your eyes. And having people who are experienced in managing severe sepsis, septic shock of all causes, intensive care can be really useful i guess as a more general note once you've done your a to e i guess that altered consciousness level is really the one thing that's kind of sticking out at you saying there's something definitely not right with the brain function you know and really kind of honing you in and i guess it comes back to how do we differentiate that from perhaps being a severe delirium from another infection and it can be very difficult. And I think you just have to keep your index of suspicion, you know, quite high on all aspects that if people have altered mentation and there is a suspicion of infection, that could this really be a neurological infection and not just assuming that it is an infection elsewhere in the body with significant delirium. 
And I guess the thing in this case would be that would maybe maybe swing away from that is that, you know, younger people, whilst they do get delirium, they don't get it as easily as older people. So I think, you know, if a very young person has significantly altered consciousness level, that really ringing kind of alarm bells for me that something's significantly abnormal here. So let's let's take a GCS of this young patient. And when you see her, her eyes are closed. She does open them to voice, but doesn't really like any kind of interaction, turning her head, doesn't like the light. She's got some evidence of rash, which looks petechial on her body. And when you feel her hand, she's cold, but um, she'll only localise to pain. And really, she's only making incomprehensible sounds. And on exposure, as you said, there is this really concerning rash that looks purpuric. And I guess that GCS is something that really I want to just discuss now about, do we image this lady before we do an LP, a lumbar puncture? Or do we lumbar puncture before we consider anything else, obviously in a, in a critical care environment, treating her sepsis. Is there time to wait before we do CT imaging or should we just crack on and do a lumbar puncture and give antibiotics? Yeah, and I think as we kind of alluded to a bit earlier, that spectrum, where does your patient sit on the kind of the meningitic type presentation versus the severe sepsis septic shock presentation is really important. And if your patient is much further down that line towards sepsis, severe sepsis septic shock, then I think, you know, the guidelines are reasonably clear from the British Infection Association that really the priority is actually to resuscitate that person appropriately and give them antibiotics and consider when you may want to do a lumbar puncture at a later date to help confirm or refute whatever you think is going on, depending on what comes from other test results. In terms of like, if we actually think just about the very specific contraindications that have been laid out by the British Infection Association for doing a lumbar puncture, if they're kind of more towards that end of not unconscious and more meningitic, then one of the the main things that has kind of been put down is a GCS of, of 12 or less. And... And I guess in this case, we're saying that this patient GCS is 10, so relatively obtunded. And that may be a less safe scenario to be performing a lumbar puncture. And that's kind of come about because the lower your GCS, the more suspicion that there may be for an expanding mass lesion within your brain. And what we're mainly concerned about is less whether there's hydrocephalus raised intracranial pressure per se, and more about whether there is a focal regional expanding mass lesion that is going to cause either uncle or cerebral herniation when lumbar puncture is performed because there can be pressure shifts under that scenario. And you've got to remember that when we do lumbar punctures for people with meningitis, they almost invariably have high opening pressures. They have an element of intracranial hypertension. So it's not the intracranial hypertension itself that is the contraindication. It is the potential for pressure differentials causing you know, brain shift, basically. And so you know, the lower the GCS, the more you might suspect that that could be something to be concerned about. And other factors that have been laid down in the guidelines are whether the patient has focal neurological signs, you know, if they've got a significant hemiparesis to suggest a hemispheric issue, 
or have they got significant papilledema, again, suggesting significant intracranial hypertension and the possibility of mass lesions, or kind of having control, uncontrolled continuous seizures. These are the sort of four things that have been laid down to watch out for you, to really caution you against doing a lumbar puncture in that specific scenario because there is a heightened risk of there being mass lesions and ultimately potentially brain shift that could cause um, cerebral herniation. I guess the caveat to that is that across the world, other guidelines do advocate different levels of GCS. And you'll find in the British Infection Association, a kind of a caveat with a triple star next to it saying lumbar puncture can be performed without neuroimaging at, you know, maybe safe at levels below that GCS. So they're kind of acknowledging that the evidence base is not great, but they have taken, a, you know, in my view, a very pragmatic decision in, in setting out uh, a level to which people can then work to rather than having to try and, you know, make it up as they go along. That's really insightful just to get a bit more insight into the, the evidence base um, for how we manage these patients. Um, obviously, doing a, a randomized controlled trial is very difficult in this cohort. What I'd like to focus on now is really how we're going to manage these patients. And as you said, critical care is an ideally safe place for managing someone like this. With regards to treating our sepsis, we're all aware of surviving sepsis campaign. Let's talk about the antimicrobial aspect of how we're going to treat this lady. We're thinking this is a bacterial meningitis, but each bacteria will have its own sensitivity, but we, we obviously use empirical guidelines. Where you work, Dr. Lloyd, what, what would your, your standard antimicrobial cocktail be for someone like this? So I think it's somebody who's very young, such as this patient. So, so locally, we would use keftraxone as our empiric antibiotic of choice for patients with meningitis and that gives a nice cover for meningococcus and pneumococcus that is acquired in the UK. As the patient starts to get a bit older, particularly over the age of 60, then we start to think more about could listeria be a cause of this presentation and we would often then add in amoxicillin to that as well. And what about steroids, specifically dexamethasone? What's its purpose and uh, how often would you encounter that situation where dexamethasone or steroid treatment may be of benefit in bacterial meningitis? You know, there was a big study um, done on dexamethasone. You know, it did show that there is mortality and morbidity benefit to giving dexamethasone, but it's really particularly in patients with pneumococcal meningitis. So quite often those with meningococcal meningitis, you know, once we have the bacteriology back, we would probably stop the dexamethasone if we knew it was meningococcal. I don't think anybody would criticize anybody if they gave it to somebody who maybe had a more meningococcal presentation because clearly pneumococcus is well known for causing severe sepsis and that is a possibility and until you get your test results back it can be extremely difficult clinically to say exactly what is causing the problem so i think you know it's perfectly acceptable to give it empirically and that is what the guidance suggests that we do is that we give it either with the first dose or very closely 
following the first dose of the antibiotics. And then we can think about whether we really need to continue that, depending on what our bacteriology tells us going forward. And we're treating cerebral edema, is that fair to say? Is that an adjunct to our... It's an adjunct really to reduce inflammation in and around the brain to help preserve neurological function. Um, And I guess it depends a little bit on, you know, we know that hearing loss is a particularly, you know, a problem in people who have meningitis, you know, and there does seem to be some evidence that it is useful for preventing significant hearing loss or at least attenuating it. So I'm not sure I know the exact pathological mechanism behind how it helps but my assumption would be that it's reducing cerebral inflammation and therefore limiting neurological injury. That's really useful just to focus on that. So let's get on to the the nitty gritty stuff. We all love lumbar puncture in uh, the acute medical take. We've managed to bring this patient up to the critical care department and the, the team was kindly asked if you could help just do the lumbar puncture, holding the bottles and making sure the samples go to the right places because it's something that we, we want to get right. What kind of things are you looking at for the fluid, the pressures? Is there anything else that we're sending other than CSF? So I think um, in in the, the case that we've highlighted so far, I think there might be an argument to delay the lumbar puncture. But I think in general, if it's felt to be safe to proceed with the lumbar puncture, then the things that we're always interested in is, A, what's the opening pressure when you go in? A pressure greater than 20, you know, we would typically see that as abnormal. Often in bacterial meningitis, it's significantly raised. And if you think about mycobacterial meningitis, TB meningitis, it can sometimes be extremely raised, you know, up to say maybe 40, 50 centimetres of CSF. Um, In terms of the appearance in bacterial meningitis, I mean, it often will be a sort of turbid colour a turbid kind of quality to it, and sometimes almost, frankly, purulent, actually. And in terms of when you're doing the lumbar puncture, it's really important to try and get that paired serum plasma glucose sample so that you can kind of correlate that with your CSF glucose and get a ratio, Um, because a ratio really informs us a lot about, you know, what is going on in terms of the suspicion. And in bacterial meningitis, we would often expect the ratio to be really very low. A normal ratio is kind of over two thirds or at least over 50%. And in bacterial meningitis, it's often extremely low, say 0.1, 0.2, you know, it's very low. And that kind of adds additional weight to when you are gathering your evidence together as to whether, you know, what you think is the etiology behind their presentation. Another very useful test, which is available locally to us, but is not available everywhere, is a CSF lactate. If a CSF lactate is significantly elevated, that has a high correlation with this being a bacterial meningitis rather than a viral meningitis. But that only holds true if the patient hasn't had any antibiotic therapy. So if they, if you're lumbar puncturing them pre-antibiotics and they have a a low CSF lactate, you know, there's a reasonable chance that actually it's unlikely that they have bacterial meningitis. And again, that is in the BIA guidelines, but it's not the easiest to find if you're just looking through it at speed. 
So just to summarize the key with the CSF lactate, when do we send that and when is it useful? So, I mean, I think it should be sent in anyone who's you suspect has got meningitis. The useful, the utility of the test really stands out in patients who have not received antibiotics and in whom it is low. It really helps exclude bacterial meningitis. That's a great tip just to, to highlight because it does become part of a bundle in our local IT requesting program. When you when you ask for a meningitis CSF screen, it'll give you a drop down of things to request and that is in it. But I guess that may not be the same in other parts of the country. So that's just good to highlight. Just going back to our case then. So this lady unfortunately did go to ICU requiring intubation and ventilation to manage her, her low GCS as she became um, less responsive. But you were asked to see her about one week after her admission and she's now been extubated and it's still not what you would expect to be a normal neurology, potentially delirious. The ICU team feel that she's ward fit and ready to be stepped down. What kind of approach will you take with this patient now and what kind of course can we predict for this lady? That's a good question, Johnny. I'm not sure I have all the answers for that. So in terms of her course and what we would want to, you know, we're often on the lookout for complications of meningitis, such as cerebral abscess or sometimes strokes. And I guess it would depend a little bit on what clinical examination was like and you know the threshold that we might have for repeating some imaging on her for example doing an MRI to really see if there was something a complication that was brewing from her initial infection I think a lot of the time as you you know many people will be aware if you've had a significant illness like that it often actually just takes you a bit of time to get better and so I think that, you know, it's a judgment call about when you see the patient, you know, do you get that feeling or is there anything in the examination that really makes you think, actually, I'm just wondering if there's a bit of a complication going on here and do we need to think about re-imaging her? And, you know, is there any role for potentially repeating lumbar puncture to make sure that it has improved in line with what we would expect? And I think, you know, if she's gone from being intubated and ventilated to being extubated and just confused, that's clearly a very big improvement. Um, And it's probably sufficient to not warrant repeating the lumbar puncture necessarily. But you may want to just think a bit more carefully about your neuroimaging. That's really useful just to get an insight into the longer term management of these patients. I guess one of the things I'd just like to just touch on would be this patient came in from accommodation, potentially exposing other friends or flatmates. What kind of public health measures should we bear in mind? Uh, what kind of advice would you would you give to the clinician that initially sees this patient about what they need to do and what their responsibilities are to public health? So in, in terms of public health, there's very kind of clear guidance on what should and shouldn't be reported. And there's guidance that is kind of split into kind of syndromic presentations of which suspected bacterial meningitis, it is a notifiable syndrome. And then there's also pathogen specific advice about which pathogens are required to be notified to public health. And again, meningococcal meningitis is one of those that should be reported. I think it's really difficult, isn't it? If you're seeing someone out of hours, 
you're all tied up with trying to provide that patient with the best possible care and treatment. And then after the kind of the event has passed and the patient maybe has been transferred to a different part of the hospital, it's then that, you know, you maybe can have a bit more time to take stock and think, well, what else do we need to do? Of course, public health is one of those things that we should be doing. And it's all about trying to manage the risk to others in terms of transmission. And clearly, if she's a student, you know, there's going to be in contact probably with others. And public health have very strict criteria about who needs to be provided with prophylaxis in the context of meningococcal meningitis. And they're the ones really who to get engaged with in terms of thinking about contact tracing in the community um, as to who may have been exposed and require prophylaxis or not. And I think what we should say is that really it's meningococcal meningitis that requires prophylaxis. Pneumococcal meningitis doesn't require prophylaxis if there's been contact. But of course, haemophilus meningitis does also require prophylaxis, but is much less common than it used to be. And is really quite rare to see because of vaccination nowadays and doesn't really come up so much as an issue in terms of prophylaxis. I was going to ask your thoughts on the vaccination history. Of course, in this current time, vaccination is very topical. And it's important to make sure that we advise the public and our patients on the risks and the vaccination process, but also to take a history on their vaccination card or their vaccination history. How much do you read into that whenever you're seeing these patients? And is there any advice that you would give to the clinicians when thinking about this in particular? Yeah, so I think the, you know, the vaccination history is often one of those slightly classic, maybe slightly more niche bits of the history that maybe it's, it's expected of infectious diseases to delve into that and and maybe not so much in adult medicine, clearly in paediatric medicine. I think that's probably slightly different, although I'm not a paediatrician. And I think clearly if somebody is fully vaccinated against meningococcus, your thoughts are, well, you know, there's a reasonable chance that it may not be that. But actually, you know, vaccines are not 100% effective in most cases. And certainly it comes into the mix about trying to kind of think about which pathogen may be, you know, the culprit. But I think ultimately, you know, I'm sure there are people out there who've seen people who are fully vaccinated against meningococcus and then get meningococcal, you know, septicemia, unfortunately. And, you know, of course, there will be specific subgroups of the population who may have an immunodeficiency that they're not aware of. That means they do not mount such good responses to certain vaccines and indeed are not as able to mount as good a response to some of the encapsulated bacteria, such as meningococcus as well. So I think it's one element of the history. It certainly is interesting and, you know, it can make you think a bit more but I'm not sure that it would necessarily change the management of the here and now when the patient is in front of you. And I guess just on a similar note, I'd just like to pick your brain on when we have these patients present. Often part of the routine workup would be bloodborne virus screening, such as HIV. What, what are your thoughts on performing fat in this context? And just in t- sort of touching on, a, on an AIDS-defining illness and someone who has a complication that is unexpected, unexpected pathology or, or microorganism that they find on the LP or the CSF analysis? So there's really good guidance from the British HIV Association 
beaver on indicator diseases and certainly lymphocytic meningitis is one where you'd absolutely say you've got to do an HIV test because that could be their first presentation of HIV. I think in somebody who's got acute bacterial meningitis, if you ask many infection physicians, I'm sure they'll say just do an HIV test. The reality is in meningococcal meningitis, there's probably less of an association. But I think in someone who's got invasive pneumococcal disease, certainly, again, that was one of the main, it's an indicator disease really for doing an HIV test. You know, that was one of the, the, the presentations that really came out in the very early days of the HIV epidemic in the 1980s that invasive pneumococcal disease was much higher prevalence in those with HIV with advanced immunodeficiency. And so I think if somebody is presenting like this, there's an argument for doing an HIV test in that patient. But I think it has to be caveated by, in an ideal world, the patient really needs to be able to consent for that test. So it may not be the test that is gonna happen immediately, especially if the patient is not able to consent. That's a really useful reminder as clinicians that consent is obviously so important. Really what I'd like to do now is to just really wrap up, Dr. Lloyd, and get your, your take-home messages on what we've talked about tonight. Yeah, so I think I think meningitis is, you know, it's a potential, potentially deadly disease, you know, and up to one in five people can die from meningitis. And you know, depending on who you look at and who you read, up to maybe a you know another thirteen percent can have an unfavorable outcome. So it's a really serious condition in terms of the outcome for your patient. And I think that's why it strikes a bit of fear into many people who treat it. And that's the first thing is it's very important to know about. The second thing is I think the lumbar puncture test is really a key test to try and do on your patient as early as possible. We didn't really touch on the timing of lumbar puncture tests other than in relation to CT scanning. But I think the earlier that you can do your lumbar puncture test, the better. We know that if the lumbar puncture test is delayed, you know, the yield from culture after the administration of antibiotics is significantly diminished after about four hours. So performing the lumbar puncture as early as is reasonably possible um, would be my second message. And I think my third message would be that not everybody necessarily needs to have a CT scan for this uh, condition. You know, the primary tool at your disposal for diagnosing meningitis other than the patient's symptoms and signs will be the lumbar puncture test. That was what will really clinch your diagnosis. There are obviously lots of other ancillary tests that you can do, such as throat swabs and whole blood for PCR and things. But really, the lumbar puncture test is probably going to be the one that helps you decide whether your patient's really got meningitis or not. And so I think those are probably my, my key take-home messages, other than obviously get critical care involved at an early stage if required. Great stuff. That's been a really comprehensive overview of how sick these patients can be. And I'd just like to say thank you. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you, Dr. Lloyd. I would like to highlight to our listeners that we ask for feedback through our social media accounts on Twitter or Instagram. And we can send some questions if you have 
any for Dr. Lloyd or, or for any other of the podcasts that were recorded. Once again, Dr. Lloyd, thank you very much. Thanks, Johnny.